Jason the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. After Valentine's Day on Sandos the Sidekick, perhaps Chase Sandos had a little too much fun on Valentine's Day. Not quite sure. He's not with me yet. We'll be very soon, Mike Gallagher, along with you. Thanks for joining us for the first show of two this week. Thursday, Jay will be on the road with Kevin Brown as they go from Mercer to the Citadel, Macon to Charleston, ETSU men's basketball's road swing. They've got four games left on the year, three of those away, one of them at home, that one home game, Chattanooga, Wednesday, February 23rd. And it'll be Bucks, Mox with Chattanooga, really, unless something goes catastrophically wrong for Lamont Paris and company. They'll have a regular season championship and the one seed already locked up, so not sure there will be a lot on the line there. We're going to talk Southern Conference men's basketball standings, individual teams, matchups from this past weekend. In our second segment today, we will discuss what they may be playing for, Chattanooga that being outside of the number one seed and the conference championship, because, again, those two will already probably be in their possession at that point. Uh, but will they be playing for an at-large bid, or did that loss to Western Carolina already doom them? Jay Sandoz does walk in. First thing we're going to talk about is ETSU women's basketball going on the road, getting a victory at that same Chattanooga Mock School. And later, annual bold predictions, Super Bowl props recap, which not so surprisingly did not swing my way, but I'm actually kind of happy to say it didn't really swing too far in Jay's direction either. Welcome, Jay Sandoz. Wow, you look exceptionally nice today as opposed to usual. Yeah, uh, you're on. Now, yeah, sorry. Uh, so I uh, was sounding better than I was looking, or looking better than I was sounding. Well, you're always sounding better than you're looking. Oh, well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. Had a little, uh, little fun for the last home game, the Chattanooga game. We did. Uh, most people, I'm sure, know we do the little sit down with uh, players in the originally scheduled players no longer on the roster. So we uh, we, we went to a slightly, slightly more recognizable guy and Dr. Brian Nolan. So I got a chance to do that and had a little fun. Talking a lot of things, ETSU basketball, his love for basketball. And uh, and then he quizzed me on ETSU basketball over the last decade. Um, so that, How long is this feature going to be? Usually these are like 90 seconds. Uh, it's only 90 seconds, oh, okay. but as soon as we got done, he uh, quizzed me, and we went through basically every year-by-year year team since he has been at the helm uh, at ETSU 10 years now, I believe January 15th, if I'm not mistaken, was the 10-year anniversary. So. Anyways, I uh, had a little had a little fun doing that. Without expecting that, I thought he was going to do the you know the president thing, come in for you know ninety seconds in out. All right, we'll see you. But he stayed for fifteen twenty minutes and talked. That being said, me and him did celebrate uh, the women's basketball win over Chattanooga. He also said that he thought, like we have stated, other than maybe Mercer, and again, maybe I'm just not buying into Wofford on the women's side, but it's a wide open Southern Conference side. I am convinced everybody other than Western Carolina can win a game, at least a game in the tournament, and some of those wins can shift the powers to be and who's going to go. But I thoroughly do not see, and again, I know Mercer is a particularly bad matchup for ETSU, but Mercer doesn't match up well against other teams. So depending on how this tournament falls and matchups go, I thoroughly believe there's about six, seven teams that can win this thing, and you're not going to convince me of it. I do not think the one through four seeds will win all quarterfinals. The one and two will meet in the championship game. I just don't believe that's going to happen. Yeah, maybe we can. We'll dive in that later. I'd talk I'd, a little bit more later about that, but I'm Wofford because I do think that's interesting. I know we don't talk a ton about women's basketball on a conference-wide scale here on the show. We do that more with men's basketball, but it is interesting with Wofford because you know me coming in. I think I had them like sixth. I mean, I didn't think they were going to be even close to the top half, let alone contending for a Southern Conference championship, which they are. I mean, they still only have one loss, and it's strange how they're getting there. The one thing they have is continuity, right? Nia Lutz, Alexis Tomlin, Lily Hatton, Jackie Carmen, Annabelle Schultz, Helen Matthews. You recognize all those names if you pay attention to Southern Conference women's basketball, and you know that some of those players, when they are at their best, can be some of the best in the Southern Conference but it's so balanced. Like, that's what I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting Reagan Rappert to come in and give you eight points per game. I wasn't expecting, certainly, Jackie Carmen to get back to her pre-injury form as she has, though that is good to see because I always hate when an injury derails a career, and she had a great career really building until that injury came along, and now she's back, which is awesome to see. But Alexis Tomlin, Annabelle Schultz, I just wasn't sure they'd be able to sustain 
contributions for the period of time that they have, but they're averaging 68 points per game, which if, again, you pay attention on the women's side, that's a healthy number, especially in Southern Conference play where defense and sometimes shot-making defense really wins out over shot-making a lot of the time. So that is interesting. I don't know if I'm buying into them either, and I guess I'd agree, like two through seven, and it's almost the same on the men's side. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about that in segment two, but Chattanooga seems like the best team. Like Mercer seems like the best team on the women's side. And then you go probably every team except Western Carolina on the men's side, just like with the women's side, could go and get to the championship game, which is an encouraging thing for an ETSU women's basketball, for an ETSU men's basketball who have obviously had their struggles. But you look at the women as we jump into this game with Chad. It really opened my eyes seeing them do it without Carly Hooks and Demaya Griffin. Like that, I mean, I'd like to think I'm about as optimistic as they come. So are you with women's basketball, even during the tough years. But I did not see them being able to put up 40 points and a half and then 65 on the road against a notoriously good Chattanooga defense without two of their most dangerous scorers, one of them being their top scorer in Carly Hooks and Demaya Griffin, who went you talked about with Simon Harris last night in the ETSU Radio Coaches Show. Demaya Griffin, who went back-to-back games in double figures in terms of the last two full games that she played. Now, she got injured against Mercer, right? So she wasn't able to go for more than, I think it was about a half. That I think that injury happened, like, midway through the third quarter, somewhere around there. But she wasn't able to put in a full game. Last two games, though, that she's been able to be out there the entire time, double digits. So without those two, I didn't hold out a lot of hope. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Uh, just when... I got the memo ahead of time, like, hey, you know, Demise still out. And, by the way, no Carly Hooks, who had had, what, five, six games in a row with double figures. And I thought really had kind of figured out her game and her role in um, the system. And so you tell me those two are out, and I'm like, yeah. And then, of course, talking to Chattanooga and Todd Agney, who's doing the color for ESPN Plus, he he drops on Friday because I told him, you know, probably not going to see Griffin. And he's like, well, I might as well tell you that no no Abby uh, Cornelius. And I thought, well, maybe that – kind of equals out, but then you tell me no Carly Hooks, I'm going, man, still can't even get a break there. But the one thing we know is Ja'Kai Davis sometimes can't stay on the floor because of foul trouble, but she can score. And she was 7-12, 15 points, 7 boards, gave him 26 minutes. That's more than what she had clearly been averaging. Then you get Courtney Moore, the 15.7 turnovers, a little disappointing, but 15 points, 7 rebounds for her. That's a good number. You knew people had to chip in there. And although Demi Burdick didn't shoot the ball particularly well, two of seven, she did have eight rebounds and three offensive boards for ETSU. So this was a team that they lost to, what, by 20 in Freedom Hall? No. Brooks Jim? Correct. Still lost by 20 at home, and they're able to flip it. And it was one of those situations. I joke with Coach uh, on the coach's show because I watched almost all the first half. And then I left to go do Coach Oliver interviews. I did some sponsor interviews. And then I click it back on, and all of a sudden, the third quarter's over, and ETSU gave up a 23-8. to <laughs> You know, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I think I showed you as you were getting ready to, to record a TV spot, and you're like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. I was gone. I don't. But it felt like the normal third quarter that has been the swoon for ETSU women's basketball, but they were able to overcome. And to me, that is huge that they've, they've had so many of those. Can you have an aha moment where you can overcome yourself or overcome whatever and get over the hump? And I thought that was huge. And I'm not making light. We all know I love to beat Chattanooga and all this other stuff, but 8-30 and 30 all time in Chattanooga. So just to get the ninth win there, I think, speaks volumes, missing a couple of players. And again, the first road win of the year. We know how difficult it can be, both for the, I think, men and women. You know, I was talking to... Bucky McMillan before the Sanford game on the men's side, and he made sure to point out, like, this league across all the country is the most difficult one to win on the road winning percentage-wise. Now, I tried to go and look that up, and there's some things in the back end of the NCAA system that we have access to that we can find, usually to get around doing tons and tons of research on if that's something like that, a stat like that is true or not. I could not find it. Now, I only dedicated like five minutes to it, so I may go and try to do that again at some point. But if that is true, I mean, that is eye-popping, startling, right? And on the women's side, if you look, consistently, year after year after year, that has proven to be true. If it's not bottom of the country in terms of road winning percentage for teams, it's right around it. And so any win you can get on the road, especially without two of your better players, is a big shot in the arm. Now, the third quarter 
is obviously something that we have talked about a lot and almost have to continue here because it's just been such an issue for the Bucks. And I'm really sick of talking about it. I'm not really going to bring it up on the broadcast on Thursday at Western Carolina. I'm just going to ask Simon Harris before the game starts on the interview. That'll be like 645 or so on Thursday night on the Sports Monster across WXSM and Buckingham Sports Network. What do you think is going on with Coach Boyle? Like, what is it that goes on in the locker room in your mind? You know, have you had this with other teams? Just something to kind of shed some light on what may be happening because it wasn't just the third quarter in this case. It was the first 11 minutes, so the first minute of the fourth quarter as well. 28-8 to eight run for Chattanooga. And you fell behind by four. And to me, it was panic time, right? Like red flags, sirens, alarms. This is the reckoning of this game, right? Like now you've lost the lead. You're down by two possessions. There's no way back. But give Abby Carrington, Sarah Thompson, Ja'Kai Davis, Courtney Moore, the entire bunch, all nine that were there to help ETSU get this victory, give them credit because then from the 646 mark of the fourth to the 228 mark, 9 nothing run to take an eight-point lead. And essentially that was it. Now Chattanooga did have a couple of chances late, but you sometimes got to turn to your veterans on both ends of the floor. And I thought Amaya Adams was spectacular the entire day, a very Amaya Adams-type game, right? Not going to blow you away by scoring 20 or, you know, having a huge day on the glass or taking like seven or eight steals, but does everything solid. And on the second-to-last possession of the game for Chad, Amaria Pugh, with Chattanooga down 64-62, drives in, and right at the left elbow, Adams just kind of pokes at the ball, gets it free, Bucks take it away, they end up hitting a free throw, and then Dina Geralds did have a chance to tie it at the end and get it to overtime, five seconds left, but it was like 27, 28 feet, left wing, a few steps beyond the three-point line, didn't hit it. So the combination of Ja'Kia Davis, who if she could just stay on the floor, I think you and me agree about that, she could just stay on the floor and put in 25 minutes a day. She seems like she's good for 15 and 8 almost every single time. Courtney Moore having a good offensive day, and we know that the Bucks need that, especially without Griffin and Hooks, to be able to do what they did last Saturday. And then Adams, and then a couple of contributions from, I think, two that are shooting it with more confidence from beyond the arc. Sarah Thompson, seven threes in the last four games after just 11 in her first 19. And then Abby Carrington, who went through a really tough stretch. We know she's known for her shooting. But after going 0 for 11 from downtown in a four-game stretch, obviously kind of slacking off that pace that she usually puts up, hits a pair of threes, and every basket important in a 65-62 to 62 game. So really everyone, as you can hear, kind of did a little bit, and then in the big moments you were able to get the stops that you needed, which on men's side, ETSU men's basketball has not been able to do, but the women, a couple possessions late, got those stops and got the win. Third quarter <clears throat> just shot 21%. And it was the best shooting quarter for Chattanooga. Again, I don't know. I know the third quarter has been bad. I haven't really gone back and broken down by quarter. Minus like shooting. 152 I mean, I knew that scoring-wise. <laughs> just so you know. I knew, I knew that number, but I, I just I don't have enough to look. But I know they had five of the 14 turnovers in the third quarter. Chat got eight points off turnovers, so it kind of rained it forward. But they turned right back around and shot almost 50% in the fourth quarter. 7 to 15, 1 for 1 from the free th- or from 3. Which considering they got off to a fairly hot start from 3, 7 made threes in the first half, they just had one in the second half, but I, you know, there's some things here I kind of if you get Griffin back, you get Hooks back and the team is able to kind of get these minutes and starting to figure it out. It feels like they're starting to figure it out. And they were able to avenge the Chattanooga 20-point loss. They lost, what, 18, I think it was, if not 20, to UNCG. That's the Saturday game. UNCG 0-4, I think, at home. 0-5 at home is West Carolina. So they're going to be the second uh, or the first matchup there on Thursday in Cullowee. Mike Mitchin is going to do the game there. But both those teams haven't won a home Southern Conference game. It feels like things are set up for ETSU to maybe go on a little streak here or at least – there's a couple winnable games before. They would have two tough home games. And you're looking at a Wofford who's, you know, just because of games played, I think they're a full game back technically in the standings. Correct. But tied the in the loss column. column. Yeah. And then Furman's right there slightly above Sanford. And so, well, my theory of, you know, Furman being Furman, they come back down a few spots here. But certainly 
they get those two teams at home, they could get, kind of get on a run here with the team that, A, still hasn't won a conference game in Western Carolina, and then the second game, a matchup with UNCG that hasn't won a home conference game. And so, again, I think it's a ETSU didn't shoot a free throw in that game against UNCG. They didn't miss a lot against Western Carolina, so they're two different type games. Can they get the second win in a row? And when was the last time they had a win streak? Well, back-to-back Division One wins, if you want to count two as a streak. Actually, it's the same if you want to count three as a streak. Three is generally where a streak starts, quote-unquote. But end of the 2018-19 season, have not won back-to-back Division One games since then. And only have won back-to-back games at any point one time since then. So if you can get the Western game, yeah. and you get two, and you feel good, and then you go to UNCG, if you could get that one, then you got the three-game streak, and then you host Wofford, I believe, first, then Perk. And then you got a, I mean, you got a shot there because then if you could get a three-game streak going into two home games to get yourself right for the conference tournament, plus if you get those two wins, I mean, you got a legitimate shot to get in at least the four or five game, depending on how Sanford goes. And again, they play firm. You know, they're not going to catch obviously the top two teams and, and leapfrog any of them. But with four games left. They could get to seven and seven, right? Unless my math is incorrect. And then obviously, Furman could be Furman get seven and seven because that's what they do. And Sanford seven and four, so they could get three losses. They still got to play Mercer. I don't know the rest of their schedule. I think realistically, we're probably looking at five or six. Now, I don't like Mike Gallagher. He is correct, though. He is correct. We can talk about what path you'd rather have. I mean, personally, I'd rather have the six, if we're honest. Like, if the Bucks don't get to the five, if they're not able to leapfrog Chattanooga. I'm totally fine with that because then you don't have to see Mercer, who appears to be, as you mentioned earlier, the best team. I don't know, hands down, if you want to use that term or not, but they certainly look and have proven to be, so far, head and shoulders above many of the other teams in this league. There's still three games left for them, still three games left for Sanford. Um, then you got yeah, five games left for Wofford and then four for Furman. But you're right about ETSU. I mean, UNCG and Western Carolina, bottom two teams in the league. Three games, and then against Wofford and Furman, who neither of us are sold on at least. Now, Simon Harris and his squad are not going to take either of them lightly. But considering their preseason projection, some of their wins this year have not necessarily been the most convincing. Now, Wofford has one, so you have to give all the respect, right? They're eight and one. Only one conference loss. Absolutely. Pat on the back. Well done. But they still have a lot to prove. And their schedule shows that. If you look the rest of the way, their next two games are against Mercer and Sanford, the two preseason league favorites. Then you got UNCG at home, okay, but then you got to finish at ETSU at Chattanooga, a couple of games on the road. Um, so, point being, I would rather have the six, so then you don't have to face Mercer, who has proven to be the best team, at least so far, in the league until the final. Where do you fall on this? About an hour ago, a longtime member of ETSU's administration came up to me and dropped one of the most flamingly hot takes that I absolutely loved, right on top of me at the very beginning of my Tuesday morning. He said, I think that women's basketball is going to win the Southern Conference Tournament. We're going to the NCAAs. Now, you look at what ETSU has done lately. Remember, they were 1-15. They've won three of their last seven, two of their last four, coming off a win. Is this the same guy voted in person? It is not. It's a different guy. It is a different guy. Two separate people now, one preseason, and one with four games to go have said, championship, ETSU women's basketball. Hey, I love it. I'm all on board. I was, I think, a little surprised to hear it simply because, you know, you look at four wins just across the board. Number seven team, or number six team right now, have been seven and eight throughout a lot of the regular season. And you just look at the record, and you look at the recent history, but it really goes to show just how much belief there is in this team, how much belief there is in Simon Harris and what he's doing, and I uh, I was floored there for a second, and I said, you know what? I'm not going to think too much about this because I love the positivity. And there is a path to be able to say, wow, they could be a dark horse going into the tournament if you do win that UNCG game, if you do win that Western Carolina game. And then even if you get one of Wofford and Furman, I don't think you necessarily need both, but then you will have won four of the last five going into the tournament, and that is all the momentum you need. Agreed. I, I think the more you can get some wins going, you get in a neutral floor. We've seen strange things happen. We've seen on the women's side, even on the men's side, the last two years, the men's side, the seventh seed has been in the championship game. So, I mean, there's there's no – I think the matchup with Mercer is a 
bit daunting with the current roster at ETSU. So I think, could they be Mercer? Sure. Would it be better to hold that off where you had an extra day? This is, this is a huge advantage, I think, for the women. If you get to the title game, you get the day off. You know, as opposed to a light bench, which I think you would agree, ETSU, maybe not as deep as other teams. Right. So getting that extra day off is huge for the underdog as opposed to the regular season champ that maybe has some built-in advantages and stuff. So I feel like if you could, it would be better, and it would not break your heart or my heart if they were the sixth seed just to stay on that side of the bracket away from Mercer as long as you could. Yeah, and you make a good point because on the men's side you have to win three in three days or four in four if you're in the 7, 10, 8, 9 games. But on the women's side it's Thursday, Friday, break Saturday, and then you have that early game Sunday for the championship. So you make an excellent point. And it's about a 40-hour break if you play the last game or 44-hour break if you play the last game. Because you're the first two games of that day. Right, you're not like the men where you you have to play – you know, the time keeps moving up on some teams where the, the higher seed teams, it moves back. So they get more rest while you get less rest. So there are some things there that certainly, I think, favor the underdog on the women's side in the championship game than it does the men's side. So if you could just get a decent seed, play some games, go, good going in, so getting some wins, and let's say four or five, that's, a I think, a realistic goal. If they could win four or five in the sixth seed, you know, and then you get a, a Furman or Sanford in that that first game, and then maybe you get a Wofford in the in the semis, and then who knows what happens from there? You get in the championship game off. Who knows? Again, upsets happen, and we saw them last year. ETSU kind of led the charge with a first round upset last year. So, I think this is going to be an inter- and to be honest, I just uh, and Mercer has shown it at times. I just don't think they have been as dominant as they have been in the past. That being said, I still think they're the dominant team to beat in this tournament. Let me just say that. And it's it's so odd. I mean, Wofford's leading the league in scoring margin in league play, 14 points a game. They're averaging over 70. They're giving up 56. And that's just – I don't know. And they've certainly had nine games to prove it. So it's not like, you know, it's, it's five games in and you're not sure what you're getting. I mean, they've made one rotation through the schedule. They're in the middle of that second rotation. And they haven't let up yet, so – they could still prove uh, clearly prove, prove my thoughts on them wrong as they keep moving forward uh, in uh, the Southern Conference basketball tournament or going towards the tournament. It'll be interesting to see how they hold up over the next, well, starting Thursday, those 10 days. We've got five games in 10 days. Home Mercer, home Stanford, home UNCG, Patty TSU at Chattanooga, and then are they able to get their legs back by that following Thursday? I imagine they will. I, I imagine it'll be fine, but towards the tail end of that five games and ten days streak, and knowing that you have to, you know, the Monday, you have the UNCG game, and then go on the road to ETSU, go on the road to Chattanooga. What's their psyche like? How are they feeling physically? And should you drop, you know, three or four of these games going into the postseason, how do you recover? But great win for the Bucks on Saturday, and uh, excited to talk more women's basketball uh, next week as the Bucks will recap, you know, kind of the two games this week, and then look forward to, wow, the end of the regular season. That seems crazy. It just doesn't seem like it's here. I don't know. I don't know what I'm waiting for to catch up in my head, but men's and women's basketball is like, what, 12 days from being done? Regular season-wise? That's nuts. Pretty crazy. Yeah, our tournament is quickly approaching upon us. Speaking of tournament, why don't we break down some Southern Conference teams on the outside of this time out and stand their sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Luxuriously designed, exquisitely detailed, first in its class. Corner to corner, a true work of art. Capable of going from zero to $300,000 in a few seconds flat. Are we talking about a sports car? Oh, no. We're talking about Jumbo Bucks Premium Edition Instant Games from the Tennessee Lottery. So test drive the new gold standard and instant tickets today. The Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Southern Conference Breakdown. I'm excited. 
And this is a time of year where you start to look at the standings and you say, okay, well, there's a lot of things that uh, those are outdated standings. You got to refresh that. Uh, you start to look at it and say, wow. Hey, there they are. This is real now. Like, this is how things probably are going to shake out with some minor movement. Now, there's still potential for plenty of movement, really, for teams, I'd say, three through three through seven now. I, I guess all the way three through nine, sure, if we're looking optimistically for an ETSU for the Citadel. But really, you look at the top, and, you know, Chattanooga kind of established themselves, and we'll go game by game here. Um, but bottom, top, anything in between, you can say, sure, like there's only a four-game difference between Furman and two at ETSU down in ninth. But are there teams really trending to be able to make the climb? Your initial thoughts. Trending to make the climb to – Or drop. I, no. I, I think Mercer fell to where they – I think their schedule will be much more doable than what they were. They were in that stretch we talked about. They had six tough games, and at ETSU is the sixth game, so they're going to play that. But one and four in the, in the previous five. So they kind of did what I thought they would do. Furman's three-game skid's interesting. Um, I think they're going to be able to pick up a, a few wins going into the tournament. VMI, you know, they go on the road at Sanford. I'd be curious to see Thursday what goes on there. UNCG got the big had some big wins coming in, and then they end up dropping the, the home game to Mercer. So I, I don't have any – all I know is, I mean, ETSU would have to win three or four to remotely have a shot to get out of the 7-10 game, but that would require other teams losing three or four and then going into tiebreaker scenarios. Uh, unless ETSU were to outright beat Mercer, and then you just want the uh, one-way tie with only Mercer and they would hold the tiebreaker. But ETSU is going to have to win three or four games to remotely have – remotely – have a shot to get uh, out of that. But they would still need a lot of help because they, they would need teams to lose three games or more. And so ETSU is probably locked in, um, especially after Wednesday, depending on that result, will be locked into the Friday. But I think Chattanooga has proved they're the, you know, right now the best team in the league. I think Furman, who everybody had second and maybe had a shot to uh, prove they were the best team, has probably settled into maybe that two seed. Uh, depending on how things shake up. And VMI's going the wrong direction uh, last little bit. I know they beat Mercer, and that was moving them in the right way, but they're, they're going to have a tough game against Sanford on Thursday. Four of the five road teams won this past weekend. We alluded to it in the women's basketball side, but that's a shock in itself considering the winning percentage for men's basketball on the road. I think going into the weekend was like 332 or something like that. It was 21-41 and 41 for road teams in this season of conference play, uh, I believe it was. Some may call the biggest surprise from the weekend, ETSU falling to Stanford simply because they had only beaten the Bucks one time in the program's history. If it wasn't that, I think it's pretty safe to say it was the Citadel over VMI, 83-79. to 79. You talked about VMI going in the wrong direction. They did have a four-game winning streak, but that is over. Sean Conway had a really good start to the year, 10 of his first 17 games, double figures in scoring, None the last nine. It didn't really bite them until this past weekend. I think a big miss there for VMI because obviously not only are they over time and especially recently the better team, a series that especially in Lexington they should be able to pretty much own, but they also had a great crowd there on Saturday, and it went to us. Yeah, that's uh – you know, it, it, you get that game, you get the rivalry, you get everything going, the crowd, uh, it's just tough. And they playing so well. And then the, the schedule, I mean, it doesn't get any easier. I mean, you look at the next couple in a row for them, and it could get a lot worse. And where they were sitting there thinking, okay, you know, probably should win that game, maybe pick up a couple road wins or split, and then they got a shot to be the two seed. Now, honestly, I, I don't I don't know how they're going to be able to uh, to win enough uh, to even even get in that conversation. I could see them even slipping even further than what uh, we thought even a week ago of them. All right. You know, I counted this as a surprise. Another dud offensively for Furman. Another impressive victory for Chattanooga without Silvio DeSosa. Darius Banks and Malachi Smith, 19 of 28 from the floor. The rest of the team, 8 of 30, and they still manage a victory. 46 of their 64 points for Banks and Smith. Furman hits only four threes. Your guy, Alex Hunter, the last three games, 6 of 19 from the floor for 
16 points, just six combined assists. You know, I'm a huge fan of Alex Hunter. Conley Garrison, four of 23 from deep the last three. Hunter and Garrison are their top two most efficient three-point shooters outside of Joe Anderson, who hasn't hit one in the last three either. The team just 21 for 81 from three, 26% the last three games, all three of those losses. You asked me if I thought that Furman had peaked too early this year on our last show discussing men's basketball. I still am going to say there's plenty of time for them to start hitting shots again, turn it around, but certainly right now not an easy stretch. I think, you know, the at Western, right, should get that game. If you're Furman and you're trying to be the, the two seed, then you, you play in the downtown arena, the Bon Secure, the Well, whatever the heck they call that thing. It's Wofford. You beat them by 25. I'd have to imagine Wofford's going to be a little fired up going into that one. Then they got at Sanford, right? Sanford's only two home losses, so that'll be an interesting. And then they get Citadel, which, again, should be I mean, they could realistically go 2-2 two and two in that stretch. Or they could realistically win all four of those games. And if they won all four of those games, and I think you're sitting there going, okay, they kind of figured it out going in the tournament. And then as a Furman fan, I think you'd feel much better about the four-game win streak going in the tournament than if you kind of limped in there two and two. And then basically, what is that, two and five, uh, your last seven going into the conference tournament. So I, I think this is a huge week for Furman. And I know, again, as most teams – do you probably and when you look at your schedule and you're a fan you go at western win and then you check it off and go and then you think well i've already beaten wofford and again i'm speaking as a Furman fan here you beat wofford by 25 you're thinking that was at their place now we get them at home downtown arena that's a win but if those two go awry on you now all of a sudden you're really reeling i think they will beat western and pull out a dog fight against wofford and then i think they'll struggle when they go to sanford the Mox can lock up at least a share of the Southern Conference title at home against UNCG Wednesday, and they would have the one seed with the win because of the tiebreaker sweeping firm. I think there's some that would say this was unexpected, but Mercer able to get the job done on the road against UNCG, and they're once again missing Neftali Alvarez. Played 16 minutes against Chattanooga. Didn't play the final eight minutes, though. Didn't play either of the ensuing two games last week, but they do get the Sunday win after losing to Chad in overtime and to VMI by six earlier in the week. Should note their leading scorer, UNCG, Demonte Buckingham, missed the Citadel game. Came back Sunday, but appeared off the bench, played only 19 minutes, and took just three shots without him at 100%. And playing his usual role, they could not keep up with Felipe Hase's 28 in the 72-64 win. I think more of the issue for UNCG right now, remember they were winning all those games 58-56, 52-50, 56-54. Tight, close games, low scoring defensively they have not been the team that they were earlier in the season but obviously they missed Buckingham's offense because he is really I think if you look objectively the only consistent offense that they can count on this season yeah and, and again tough stretch if they could have picked up that win VMI you're looking at okay Chattanooga probably a loss then on the road at Sanford again that's a clash of styles that's always depending on how that plays out if UNCG can just slow down Sanford enough, frustrate maybe a Quez Glover. They've got enough inside play to match up well with Sanford. So, you know, I could see that being a win. And then they could obviously got Western Carolina ETSU to wrap up. I mean, they could win three of four and be right there waiting to see if VMI comes down to them. But in the same token, the way they've been playing and no Buckingham, you could see them having an 0-2 week, losing to Chattanooga, then turn around and losing at Sanford, and then them scratching their heads on where they're going to finish. Uh, with a couple of home games with Western and ETSU. Only game that didn't have maybe just a tinge of eyebrow raise to it from the weekend or more, depending on how you viewed the games that we just talked about. Wofford beats Western, 69-57, pretty expected. I think the only thing I have out of that game that you'll care a whole lot about is that Isaiah Bigelow did not have to miss that game after his ejection against Sanford three days earlier, though maybe he will wish that he had one of eight from the floor, 0 of 5 from outside. Didn't help a lot, but Vontarius Wolbright still missing for the Catamounts, and without him, Western had just one double-digit score, the man you would expect. Four of 13 from the floor, not a super efficient night for Nick Robinson, but 15 points in the 12-point loss. Uh, not a lot to discuss there. I think Wofford, and you look at those standings once again, uh, is pretty much where you thought that they would be uh, at the moment. I think that you know maybe VMI is a touch higher in the standings, but I think if you would have said 8-6, and six, uh, that would probably be about where they would have slotted in. 
let's just go over some things that I would have told you before the season and tell me which of these would be the most surprising. Only 12 days left, remember, in the regular season. So I tell you these at the beginning of the year, which would have made you say, wow, I don't think we're talking about the same Southern Conference. A, Sanford being the hottest team in the league and a half game out of the four seed, having won five of their last six. VMI, just one game out of the two seed. ETSU, ninth in the conference, or Chattanooga running away with the regular season league championship? I mean, ETSU would be the shocker. Um, More than Sanford contesting for a top half spot. I think any scenario where you looked at me 12 days out at the beginning of the season and said, hey, with four games to go, ETSU's in the ninth seed. I think I'd have threw something at you. I don't, I don't, I don't, don't it looks like you want to throw something at me right now. Uh, you know, and again, it's the it's so interesting just how it's like, you know, 2018 football. And I keep going back to this, but 2018 football miracle, six to seven wins, last second, whatever, and you got a championship team. And then the next year they were one and six in those games, and you know, a four win, see, a three and nine or four and whatever it was seven, and and I think Randy's a bum, but you know how it is. You're either a genius or a bum, right? In, in the way the world works. Six of the last seven games, four points or less, an incredible streak. ETSU flipped it and was six and one. They would be tied for the two seed. If they won all of them, they're the two seed. And nobody's saying anything about anything. That's not how it works. So you're the nine seed. So I'm shocked that ETSU is the nine seed. The next shocker, I think, would be Sanford. I think that would be my num- number one ETSU, number two Sanford. Um, Probably number three VMI and then yeah, four Chat Yeah, Chat would Yeah, Chat would much as it pains me to write them in the league, I have them thinking of the league, so I, I don't, I'm not shocked that they're up at the top of the league. Any thoughts on ETSU Mercer? Uh, I think the big thing is Mercer went away from going inside in, in the second half. I would be shocked if they went away from going inside both halves. The other thing I would say was that was the last team ETSU held under 50% shooting in the second half. So uh, can they hold Mercer with not many points in the paint? And can they hold them under 50% shooting in the second half? It was probably also their last convincing win. Was their only? No. It was their one it, of their two league wins that has come by more than four points. They've watched too much Randy Sanders. That's all I can tell you. That's all I got. All right, we're going to do a bold prediction uh, recap after this timeout. Sando Sakic of the Buccaneers Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Shohei Otani has taken the MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The book in them are old. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets, a home watcher playoff with the rest of us. Javel McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. Javel McGee. Mario Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. The six foot six, two hundred twenty-five pound, three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the seventeen grand to our left, the eighteen T, forty-five yards away. Jay proceeds. To the 18th to the 17th green and into the 17th ball. Okay, so before we talk about the bold predictions, I have opinions on the game itself and the entertainment surrounding it. Firstly, how fat and horrible sounding is 50 Cent? How horrible was 50 Cent? Fat and horrible sounding. Okay, first of all, you leave 50 alone. Okay. Because I said something about, oof, 50's been eating good. Yeah. And my wife yelled at me that I'm chubby, and um, and I'm like, agreed. And then she pointed out the fact he's got millions and millions, and I guess apparently. And millions and millions. And, and, and more stacks of them, so I guess it's okay. I, I, I was happy because you know me. 
I love chubbiness, and thank goodness he's representing my kind of people. Well, I'll say this. Chubbiness doesn't bother me. Get as chubby as you want. Get as fat as you want. I don't care. Like, eat well. You've got millions. You know, have steaks and delicious, amazing I, I think things. He appalled here, but okay. Huh? I, I feel like you are appalled by the. No, chubby. not at all. Okay. It was more, I heard his voice, and I was like, this is really tragically bad. Not tragic. That's way too strong a word because it's, you know, it's in the club, you know, and it's like, all right, uh, this is fun nostalgia, you know, 20 years ago. I was going to say, you know, it's, some of these guys are 20 years older. But you could hear his background vocals. They had, you know, a little bit piped in just to support, obviously, his voice that is waning and slowly circling the drain. So these don't sound anything alike. That was uh, very sad for me. Um, people called this, and I think you'll be one of the ones to call it this because this was your era. The greatest halftime show they have ever seen, and that it would never be topped, and that there is no possible way that anyone could think differently. And I like me some Snoop, some Dre, some Eminem. I thought those three were great during the halftime show. I thought Mary J. I didn't love her song choices. First song, okay, I get it, like very recognizable. Second one, I quite honestly, and maybe this is my ignorance of Mary J. I had not heard that song. I had not heard the second song. I had heard the first one. I'm very familiar. The second one I had not heard before. I think it was back when I was actually as a disc jockey at a hip hop station when that song was out. So I was very familiar with that song. So that slightly different reason why, but yes, I had not heard the second one. Kendrick, I didn't love his second song choice. I knew both songs, but he has better music that he could have gone with. Uh, and then Fifty, obviously a horrible sounding. So that was the worst of the fails. Um, Best halftime show ever, though. I don't know. I, I'm not. You, I don't know. you know me. I, I, you get into the best stuff ever. I oh, absolutely. I, I usually try not to do it. Number one, because I don't always remember all the ones, so that's part of it. And then, of course, production value and some other things. The 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 football halftime show many years ago is gone with the more people or more surprises or more duets or, or things that you're, you're you used to be surprised by. Like here's the act. And then they do a song, and all of a sudden you'd hear something, and then it'd be another act that would be there or whatever. But Pepsi put uh, a little sponsor of ETSU Athletics, by the way, a huge amount of money in sponsorship, and wanted to get every daggone squeeze of the juice out of it. Promoted everybody except for it was fifty promoted. I don't remember fifty being promoted. He was not. That was the surprise. So, so we still had a surprise out of the thing with with. Uh, and I was surprised. Our guy, our guy, our guy, our guy fifty, and hanging upside down, and I was like, oof, that's not the. But you, that was the beginning of the video for In the Club. Correct. So that that was, and I don't think a lot of people remember that, and so people are like, what is he doing hanging up there? Well, that was the beginning of the video. So that, that part I didn't mind. I, I just I just was, when uh, Dre went to the piano, that, that woke up uh, some of my kids because I got a piano player. So he was mm. he was beside himself that, uh, you know. He played it Dr- well. Dre I was, that. And, and I liked, um, loved the, the Snoop Dre choices. Yep. Um, no doubt. Obviously, Eminem's an idiot for not picking the one he should have picked. That would have won me the thing. We'll get over in a minute, but it, it was you know the most obvious and uh, and I thought the way that they let him in was the the way I th- argued with people. Our, people were like, "Hey, they got to end with Snoop and Dre," which I guess they did. They ended with Dre, but it started with Snoop. But I was like, "I said like, you got to start with Snoop." That was my argument. Everybody's like, "Well, usually it's the young guy, so it's going to be." Uh, Kendrick, he's going to do it, and this, that, and other. I'm like, no, it's, it's got to be Snoop, because if they see him starting, the place is going to be on fire anyways. Like, as soon as he starts, that sets the tone, and then you could bring Dre as a closer, which is what ended up happening. But I did argue with a lot of people. They were like, no, it's, they never get that right. They always get the, the youngest act, even if they're um, – whether they're more popular, whether they're not, whether they should, whether they shouldn't, but it's always like the youngest act – uh, not as established, maybe not young is the right word in, in some of these instances because sometimes you have a lot of legends doing the song. But I felt like they did get that right uh, of starting with Snoop, getting people just beside themselves and then ending with, with what everyone associates with that West Coast rap back then, which was you know Snoop and Dre together. And before people rip me, I know Kendrick's second song, he was talking about Dre, so that's why he did that, and that was Correct. the tie. And I understand that, but like, I don't know. They, they went between, I thought, like, intermingled storylines coming together and some connectivity between all the performances and then just things being kind of independent of each other. Like, I know they're trying to have the surprise of 50, but 
in the club, and it just didn't fit to me. Like, everything else, it seemed to fit, and then the surprise was just kind of wedged in there. And it obviously was very startling because he did not look the same or sound the same as he did when he was – and he's done his own thing for years and years and years now. I don't remember the last time he put out a song. I don't think he's trying to do that anymore. He's moved on, and that's totally cool. Um, I just figured, I, I just figured they, they were – I thought they were trying to bring in the Texas crowd. I didn't know if that was a – He's from Houston, is he not? Is that not? Uh, so are they just trying to? Uh, I don't think so. Is he yeah. from New York? He, he had all that beef with Ja Rule and uh, all those New yeah, York guys. Maybe, yeah. um, maybe you're talking about Chameleon. Yeah, you're a big Chameleon. Oh, guy. I am a big. Uh, okay, on the game before again, I, okay. I have I just have things I need to get off my chest here. Uh, and while we're here, we might as well. Um, people are saying it was like this spectacular game start to finish. I thought the first fifty-five minutes were pretty snoozeworthy, and I was bitter about. The no call on Higgins dragging Jalen Ramsey down by the face mask on the 75-yard touchdown, and I thought the last you know number of minutes were great, but then there were people complaining about the last you know sequence of plays for the Rams where there were like four flags in three plays after there were only four flags in tariffs of the game, and an obviously big missed flag, uh, refereeing obviously something not that I don't really talk about a whole lot. You talk about a decent amount, but I try not to get upset about it. I try not to play into that narrative, but it did seem terrible. Uh, throughout a lot of the day in terms of the no calls, but then all the calls late. Um, obviously, the last three, four minutes, starting with, I guess, the Cooper Cup end around on the fourth and one, and then everything from there was awesome. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, it wasn't Patriots. Who was it? Patri- was it Patriots? Rams. Patriots, Rams, 13-3. I mean, it wasn't that bad. But that was a great game. Well, for you. It was it phenomenal. Was absolutely one of the most memorable. Although you have plenty of memories of championships, which I'm bitter about. So, I don't know. I just didn't see that being as I, I guess I'm down on it. I'm down on it. Just overall, I'm down on it. I, I'm, I, football's over. I'm very upset that I had to come into the office yesterday and today, and there's no more football for seven months. No I'm, feeling. I'm inconsolable. No, no feeling on Matthew Stafford leaving Detroit after all those years and, and getting. I could not care less. Okay. No. No. I, no, I mean, I, look, the no-look throw, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. The final drive. Love that. That was great because what's he known for, you know, in his time? In tr- always found a way for the comeback. Yeah, yeah, great, great. It was great. But the game itself, 55 minutes of just kind of, all right, well, when is it going to get interesting? And it did get interesting at the end, and it was fun at the end. And, yes, that storyline was able to complete itself with Stafford's rise to greatness after all the struggle. And that is a good storyline. But I don't know. I just I wasn't excited going in, and I'm not excited going out. I'm not sure. Fourth and one shotgun pass. Burrows oh. Did you like that? Find a way, as the Rams did, to get it into your best player's hands. Great. I didn't like that. I also, and I've tried to explain this to people too, when you get in the Super Bowl, generally speaking, and they did it in this game, the flags are very, very far and few between besides some obvious, what the one guy running on the field celebrating, <laughs> which was, what, what are you doing, number one? Uh, what are you doing? Classic. Then, uh, right, and then the, the last punt where the, the head slap, right, when I last penalty right before the Bengals punted it to the Rams before the touchdown, that's a huge 15-yard penalty. You head slap somebody right, literally right in front of the referee who is telling you to stop whatever you're doing. So I don't know how – so there's the kind of ignorant penalties that and some false starts are like, okay, you've got to call. Yes. And then they generally didn't call anything. So it was curious – when the first flag came out, now the other flag where the jersey grabbed, that looked pretty okay. But it was the first flag, I think, that got everybody a little hot and bothered because yes. they had allowed, and always do in the Super Bowl, and which is why I think usually, like, I mean, again, the first Patriot ever Super Bowl versus the Rams, not the 13-3, but Greg Schoen, Turf, Kurt Warner, all that, was because New England was allowed to get away with a lot of stuff that you weren't allowed to get away with in the regular season, and it took the Rams until the fourth quarter to kind of figure out, well, if they're going to get away with that, well, then we're going to run these you know, more illegal pick plays on offense just to get you off of us. And then the game kind of picked up steam from there. So sometimes, And I think McVay knew that from his first playoff uh, Super Bowl appearance, and so I thought they had a little bit different scheme in what they were doing Felt like the the line probably were given the go ahead to hey somebody gets by you go ahead and reach up there and grab a little bit, don't worry about it. And I thought they do what they do in a lot of Super Bowls. Generally, it's the least flagged game of the year. Generally, 
It just all happened all at once at the very end when everyone's obviously looking. And I 100% love that. But you have to throw the flag on, as you said, the really obvious stuff. And when the best cornerback in football gets dragged down by his face mask on the first play of the second half and ends up being a 75-yard touchdown, impossible to hide from that as referees. One of the late plays, and I saw this yesterday, of course all this stuff has come out, you know, day after. One Obviously. Goal, the false start. Unlike the entire offensive line, on one of the final two or three plays that the Rams had, both tackles are out of their stance way early, and it ended up being a flag on Cincinnati. It was one of the holdings. But the play shouldn't even happen because the Rams false started at both sides of the line, so they missed that too. Um, on the fourth and one, because you make a good point, Terrible to throw in general there, I think, in that situation. Now, I think it had success running the ball. Correct. If, if you're So you if, get the first. If you're the Rams and you hadn't run the ball successfully all day up the middle with Akers, then find a way to get it in Cup's hands, right? And they did without having to throw it. That was brilliant. And I say put it in your best player's hands. If you think Burrow's your best player, okay, that's fine. Put it in his hands, but shotgun, low percentage play, you had had success, and the pass rush had been decimating him all day. I mean, I'm not sure I've seen a quarterback get more beat up, at least not one that comes to mind right off the top of my head, in my entire time watching Super Bowls, than Burrow, especially on, like, the foot stuck in the ground, like, turned and, oh, disgusting. But against that pass rush, fourth and one, had success running the ball. You've got Jamar Chase, and you just saw at a fourth and one on the other side what the Rams did to get the ball in Cup's hands, like, come up with something. Come up with something. So I was also very upset about that. So I am overall obviously very curmudgeonly and very down on everything. And now let's talk about more predictions. Unless you uh, no, I got one last Please. thing. Did you, have you heard uh, the postgame with Sean McVay where they asked him about the fourth down play? I have not. And he basically, I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically when I saw him in shotgun, I knew the game was over. We were going to win. And he says, I'm mic'd up. You can go back and, oh, and yes, check the I tape. Did see this. And basically he said, Aaron Donald, I turned to somebody and said, Aaron Donald's going to make the play. Yep. And then I continued to look at the coach, and then I said, because he's the effing man. Yep. And he did. And I was like, how just glorious. Best player in football. Sean, oh, yes. It's, it was evident. If people didn't know. Yes. I think most people knew. Yes. But in case you were questioning – I think that's still the deal for everybody because that's the biggest play, the biggest game to win a Super Bowl. One thing I was up on was the MVP choice, though I could have FCF receiver completely happy Let's if go. Aaron Donald got it too. Although Stafford also deserved it because he went and led that final drive, the no-look pass. And, but he basically had Cup. I mean, Higby was out. Beckham got hurt. And that changed the whole complexion of the game, right, when Beckham got hurt. It was clear throughout the season, I think the Rams knew this, that they needed that other receiver to have success. Woods goes down, great, great, maybe the most underrated receiver in football because Cup's on the other side. He goes down, they immediately go out and get back. And you saw why when Beckham went down because they had nothing behind him, and that led to some struggles for Stafford. I mean, Van Jefferson is nice at times, but boy, did he not make any kind of play, any kind of effort at all to go and try and knocked down that interception late in the first half. You saw Skoranek, or Skoranek, or however you say his name. It looked like he was laid out of his break on the end, and the ball bounces off his left hand, and that's another interception. So it was clear they needed that second receiver. And I think they would have honestly run away with the game if Beckham had been in there, but he wasn't. Uh, but so happy for a cup. Would have been super happy for Donald. And now I think it's super interesting that there's all these rumors that everybody's going to retire very, very young, um, which I'm a little bit confused by. But hey. So I disputed uh, one thing with Hero Sports, who covers FCS great. They have um, Cup as the seventh FCS player to win. But I know, I guess FCS technically didn't exist in 1969. Super Bowl? Uh, to be Super Bowl MVP. Oh, wow. Super Bowl MVP. So seven. So you're talking about the likes of Richard Dent, Joe Flacco, uh, Jerry Rice, Kurt Warner. Seven MVPs? That'd yeah, be seven. Uh, and, but I would argue Terry Bradshaw, right? Terry Bradshaw. He's got a Super Bowl MVP. They don't put him in there. But, again, I'd have to go back to when the officially 1AA status uh, was listed. But, that's it. But anyways, either way, congratulations. He was the seventh yeah. FCS player. We certainly would like to – or I would like to celebrate that as much. Donald is the best player in football over the last number of years. I think you could make a case for Cup being the best player in football this year. It seemed like it was automatic. He was going 100 and at least one score every single week. Bull predictions. 
coin toss, heads or tails, each minus 104. You had the right to pick first. I had tails. You picked incorrectly. Now, I would have also taken tails if I were you, but thankfully, didn't have to. I got heads, so I got that one. Let's go with other stuff that I got, and then we'll go with stuff that you got. Uh, I very selfishly and probably unfairly, but I'm trailing and I need the help. Joe Burrow will be shown smoking a cigar. This was the most drastic, lopsided possibility of any of the bold predictions. No was minus 700. Yes was plus 400. I took no. I got that. Jersey number of the first touchdown score. I think, again, I probably would have taken what you took. You went over 9.5, but Beckham, wearing number three, scored the first touchdown. I got that one. And uh, I, I erupted in um, not-so-nice words, <laughs> yelling at the TV, in which the people at my house all stared at me and going, man, you really hate OBJ. I'm like, nothing to do with that. <laughs> you I, have no idea. I needed his number to be 10 listen or more. The <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> they had no idea what I'm talking about. Right, yeah, listen to the podcast. Uh, and then my best prediction of all bold predictions this year, probably, because I've only gotten like four others right, Lose Yourself, the first Eminem song. Very, very happy about that. So I got four. There were two pushes, and you were beside yourself, it seemed like, when Snoop Dogg came out in white shoes. You're too easy. Too easy. Why did I go with white shoes? Too easy. Yes. I I sent you very little text about anything, but that was one of them I exploded that I should have. That why I knew. That's awful. I can go back to many, (laughs) many, many videos and many, many, many things. The white shoes with the color laces, it was a bad, bad call by me. Terrible. I went with green, obvious reasons. You went with black, both of those incorrect. So that was a push. And then the Gatorade color, you had... Clear or white. Right, clear or white. And I had orange, which is the favorite, blue. Mm. We both took the Rams. I mean, Why didn't we take blue? Yeah. That's very frustrating. Blue's hot. Three of the last four years, uh, blue has been the color to be poured on the winning coach. Let's remember that for next year. Uh, things that you got right. Brilliant on the flyover. Five points. That's well done. That's well done. I, I can't be upset about that at all. I thought you were crazy for taking Trey Young. Not so much in the fact that it may not be correct, but in the fact that they were playing the Boston Celtics and you are a fan of the Celtics, and so then you're cheering for Trey against the Celtics, but you're covering your bases. And, and the Celtics won the game. Celtics won. And, and the Celtics won a game, baby. Trey, Let's go. And you got that prediction. Trey Young had 46 combined points, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks. The game only had, and again, I think this would have been different if Beckham was in there, but only had 43 points. Uh, what else did you get? Oh, Rams under. The winner mm-hmm. of the game and the under. I had the winner in the over. You had the winner in the under. Again, Beckham injury definitely cost me. And the national Let's anthem. Let's go. Well done. Over 150. It was well over. The over under, I believe, was 135. 95 seconds. 150. Yes, and the, the, the last part went about 35 seconds because when she started and what was a minute in everyone and I told everybody that it had to be over 95 seconds and other people were timing it with me and they're like way under way under and I'm like well we, it's got to be it's got to be the big finish because she flew through it got to yeah. have the big finish yeah. and the big finish got me through yeah full predictions Super Bowl props very fun okay so on Thursday you're going straight from Mercer to the Citadel Megan to Charleston so I will be here. We will talk with you on the phone to discuss ETSU. Mercer, maybe a little bit on ETSU Citadel for men's basketball. I've got Joe Panucci to preview ETSU baseball fifth season for the skipper. And then Gary Downs is going to come down the hall talk recruiting class. Recruiting coordinator, running back coach. He knows all those guys very well. Has seen tons of tape, knows them personally. I wanted to do that day up, but we had such a big show that day anyway. So we will have Gary Downs to break down the recruiting class even more. you got to love football any time of year, and I need something to make me feel better about the NFL being open. All right. Well, I'll be with you Wednesday night. Coverage ETSU Mercer. Then we'll have the podcast Thursday. Then Mike has women's basketball Thursday night. Saturday, i got men's basketball. But another podcast coming up Thursday. Bucket in, Sports Network.